Somebody left me a rose up here. This must be, this must be yours, Dave. It smells good. <laughs> Dave was trying to get in good with me by giving me a rose. <laughs> good morning and happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Have you noticed that when you're a mother, you tend to look at the world in a whole different way than you did before you had children, before you were a mom? It gets to the point that you almost redefine the meaning of certain words. Remember that thought about redefining the meaning of words. For example, when you're a mother, feedback means the inevitable result when the baby doesn't appreciate the strange carrots. That's feedback. Now, it means something completely different to Jerry and Steve and Kwong in the sound booth. And sterilize is what you do to your first baby's pacifier by boiling it and to your last baby's pacifier by blowing on it and wiping it with spit. Isn't that true, huh? For this Mother's Day message, we're going to do something a little bit different, something we actually haven't done on a Mother's Day in about six years. It's been six years since we had a Mother's Day message that was related to the important issues of life in our nation. There's no better day, I don't think, than Mother's Day for us to look at some of the issues surrounding the value of life than Mother's Day. For all the moms out there this morning, I believe one of the best ways we can honor you and mark Mother's Day is to call attention to the fact that you've done something that all of us men here today cannot do. You can bear life. And isn't it great to have Olivia Grace here for the first time? Now, neither of the parents are here, but Olivia's here. Oh, there she is. <laughs> there she is. All right, all right. Only God can give life, can breathe life into us, but mothers are God's instruments to bear that life, nurture that growth in the womb, bring him or her into the world. So I hope this morning, with a little bit of a different kind of message for Mother's Day, we can help equip you to understand the current questions related to life issues, and have some ideas about how we can respond to those who are, by God's grace, truly pro-life. Of course, the classic passage of Scripture that we always think about, one of the foundational verses for understanding human life, it's not the only one, there are others, but this is the one we hear quite often. It reveals God's creative work in the body of a woman, and that's from Psalm 139, verse 13 where we read, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Isn't that a great word picture? You knit me together. Here we see God at work inside the psalmist's mother, David. And David writes, you, that is God, speaking to God, he says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That reality that women who become mothers are God's means for bringing new life into the world has been under attack for more than 40 years here in America since before the legalization of abortion in 1973 in all 50 states. After that time, the unborn could no longer call the womb a safe place. And that attack has only escalated in new and different ways since that time. The most recent battlefront, and I hate to say this is a battle, but it is indeed a battle, but the most recent battlefront is related to what we spoke of a m moment ago. Now, we use this humorously, and we talked about the redefinition of words, but just as mothers might redefine what sterile means for their children as they have more children, hey, after all, isn't there a five-second rule when you drop something? 
on the floor. Our culture tries to redefine words and ideas and keeps changing the arguments related to the longest-running, most contentious issue of our time, abortion. And you know what? More than 40 years later, it's not going away. It's not going away. Now, that fact frustrates and confuses the most ardent supporters of abortion. Why can't we all just accept that this is the law? That's what they say. That's what they think. For years, the pro-life message, the pro-life apologetic, the thing that we would want to uh, get across to people was relatively simple. We thought, and I say we because my assumption this morning is that I'm preaching to the choir. That is that all of us here understand that abortion is in fact the snuffing out of a human life. But we thought that we had to get people to understand that there is a baby growing inside the womb. And that that baby was more than just a blob of tissue to be removed like you'd remove a wart. Now, the science has always been absolutely clear on this. What else is an embryo, a fetus, a baby, other than different stages of development of a human life? I learned that in grade school science. Though we pro-lifers often found it rather amazing and even appalling that people didn't seem to understand this, either willfully or out of total ignorance, the message we tried to communicate is that this is a baby. This is a human life. Now, interestingly enough, that's not a big issue anymore. The technology of ultrasound has given us a virtual window into the womb. Have you ever seen a real ultrasound? Well, this is a 3D ultrasound, but even the 2D ultrasounds give us a window into the womb. That little guy or girl on the left is already bored with today's sermon. Looks like he's yawning. You cannot see a baby on an ultrasound and think this is just tissue. That's why pro-life legislators in many states have tried to get passed into law a requirement that women undergo an ultrasound before having an abortion. If it looks like a baby and it moves like a baby, it's a baby. So this window into the womb, more and more people are understanding, and more and more people are compelled to admit that, well, okay, this is a human being. A small one, admittedly, but a human being nonetheless. So now, one of the main issues in these life questions, battles between pro-aborts and pro-lifes, is this. It's the battle for personhood. It's the battle for personhood. There are certainly other battlefronts, but the argument now from pro-aborts is often about when a human life in the womb actually becomes a person. Now, here's where we get into that redefinition of meaning and uh, redefinition of words and different meaning of phrases and such. Now, I don't know when there became a difference between a human being and a person in this context of life. Many pro-aborts would say there is a difference. I don't think there is. But the abortionist argument is about personhood. And the frontier beyond that argument about personhood is very revealing and it's very troubling. It's revealing of where people are really coming from. And it's very troubling because of the implications for life in our culture. So the argument is now becoming, does it even really matter? Does it even really matter if this is a person? I want you to watch an example here. I want you to watch this song and dance from the president of the largest abortion provider in America, Planned Parenthood, as she gets backed into a corner. For you, when does life start? When does a human being become a human being? 
this is a this is a question that I think will be debated through the centuries, and people you know people come down to very different uh, points of but view. But for you, that. what's what's that point? It's I mean, it is not something that I feel like is really part part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, we work with women. I, I guess the way I'd really like to to um, I think every woman has to make her own decision. What we do at Planned Parenthood is make sure that women have all their options uh, for health care mm -hmm. and that they have the option to um, have a healthy pregnancy. They have an option to put a child up for adoption if they decide to carry a pregnancy to term, uh, or they have the, the right to make a decision to terminate a pregnancy. But wh why would it be so controversial to say, for you to say, when do you think life starts? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's controversial. I don't mm -hmm. know that it's really relevant to relevant to the to the conversation. But I mean, okay. for me, I'm a mother of three children. Um, mm -hmm. For me, life began when I delivered them. Um, they were part of. They they've been probably the most important thing in my life okay. ever since. Mm -hmm. But that was my own personal. That's my own personal wow. decision. Wow! Did you get that? Though she danced around this question that she was asked for nearly a full minute, she eventually said what has become the truth about all this, about the pro-abortion argument. Personal choice has now become the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. Even though this argument fails miserably in simple logic, that's where so much of the pro-abortion argument has to end up these days. Because if you are forced by science and logic to admit that this is a human being, and if you have to try somehow to make a distinction between a human being and a person, then the only line of reasoning left to you is the idea, well, okay, it's human, but we don't really know when it becomes a person. And even if it is a person, the mother's choice always trumps the baby's life, always. Well, you might think, well, surely nobody could go that far in their advocacy. Remember first what the philosophy that we just heard from this woman who's the head of the largest abortion provider in America, Planned Parenthood. She said her very own baby was alive when it was born. That's what she said. The baby was alive when it was born. Now I have to assume she means that before her babies, her three children she said she had, before they were born they weren't alive? Is that what she meant? I wonder if her kids know that's what she thinks. And more than that, it was her own personal decision, her own choice. It was her own personal decision when that baby became alive. Now, I hope if I should ever get sick or incapacitated, someone like Cecile Richards isn't deciding whether I'm alive or not. I hope when a baby is born with a birth defect or a mental challenge, or even when it's just inconvenient, it's not up to her to decide by her own personal choice whether or not that child is alive or whether it's up to me or anybody to make that kind of decision. Believe it or not, there are even serious university-level academic professionals arguing for what they call afterbirth abortion. Two Australians wrote an article for the Journal of Medical Ethics what they called afterbirth abortion should be considered acceptable at times where the newborn would be putting the well-being of a family at risk. They cite, for example, as an example, they cite a Down syndrome child, and they write this, such children might be an unbearable burden on the family and on society as a whole when the state economically provides for their care. 
That was their quote. They write that the moral status of the newborn is equivalent to the fetus. And of course, you know what? That's actually true. But not in the way they're using this argument. They say that both a fetus and a newborn are simply potential persons. Merely being human is not in itself enough of a reason for ascribing to someone a right to life. Now, the author counters the argument that these potential persons have the right to reach that potential by stating this. Overridden by the interests of actual people, parents, family, society. You get that phrase, actual people? To pursue their own well-being. Because as we have just argued, merely potential people cannot be harmed by not being brought into existence. This is disturbing, folks. And as disturbing as this is, think about it for a moment. We have to be honest and recognize that this is the logical outcome of the current abortion culture that we already have. It's the logical outcome of that line of thinking. After all, think about this. If we're arguing about when it's okay to abort a baby, three months, six months, moments before the head is delivered, then why not extend that to after the baby is born? We might be inclined to think that surely these people that I've quoted here this morning, they are outliers. In other words, they don't represent the mainstream of thinking in any, uh, in any significant way. Now, I would say to that thought, at least not yet they don't. But we are naive to think that we couldn't or wouldn't have a culture that would eventually find this kind of thinking more acceptable. Let me illustrate further. There was an article I found with this headline, So What If Abortion Ends a Life? Wow, did we hear that right? Yes, the author of this article said in the subhead of the article, I believe that life starts at conception, and it's never stopped me from being pro-choice. Let's take a few minutes to follow her logic here. It's a very long quote, okay? It's not the whole article, but it's a long segment of it. But I think it's significant for us to understand the next battle we're facing. So follow along with me here on this. She writes that all life is not equal. That's a diff difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet, a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should always automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her, always. When we on the pro-choice side, get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. I can say amen to that. She writes, I have friends who referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later were exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. I know women, women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies was vastly different, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same? Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. When we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion versus second trimester versus late term. 
dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. Are you human only when you're born? Only when you're viable outside the womb? Are you less of a human life when you look like a tadpole than when you can suck on your thumb? They, referring to pro-lifers, she says, they believe that if we call a fetus a life, they can go down the road of making abortion mur murder. And I think that's what concerns the hell out of those who, of us who support unrestricted reproductive freedom. Excuse that, it's her language, not mine. Now, if it weren't for her conclusions, this statement could almost be pro-life. This could almost be a pro-life argument. And isn't that interesting? She concludes by writing that essentially it's up to individual pregnant women, regardless of the circumstances, when to abort and when to give birth. Her last line in this essay is chilling. And I think most of what we've already read is rather chilling too. She writes this, I would put the life of the mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. That's trying to make it sound a little bit noble, isn't it? Sacrificing. That's where the twisted logic of the pro-aborts takes them. She understands very clearly, doesn't she? She understands very clearly the obfuscation that the language, the euphemisms, the changing of definitions that they routinely use to describe the unborn brings to the argument. She recognizes that this argument is fatally flawed. So she grants that we, like we pro-lifers, okay, she grants what we have been hoping that pro-aborts would admit to and understand through all these years of the battle against abortion. We are hoping that people will see that the unborn are incontrovertibly living human beings, even persons. Our hope has been that this recognition would be enough to win this battle. But for these women in a society where our consciences are seared. You know what a seared conscience is? That's what we have, isn't it? For these women, that's not enough. And personal choice is the absolutely sacred value. Incredibly sad. Incredibly sad. Now, I want to tell you it's not all gloom and doom on the pro-life front. In most of the world, this recognition we talked about that the unborn are human beings, they are persons, in most of the world, it's enough. In most of the real world, at least today, when women have an unplanned, even crisis pregnancy, and it can be a crisis for a variety of reasons, and begin to think about how hard it will be to have a baby, when they're confronted with the reality of what they are carrying in their belly, often with the wonderful life-saving tool that we mentioned of an ultrasound, that window in the womb we looked at, most women, when they see that, they cannot abort their baby. They can't go through with an abortion. When they are able to convince themselves that this is just a blob of tissue, just cells to be scraped from their uterus, it's a lot easier to go through an abortion than when they see the undeniable evidence of life moving around inside of them. But here's the problem. There's a very large and influential segment of our culture which continues to tell them lies about the life growing inside of them and when those lies don't commit, convince anymore, the fallback position is what we just looked at. It's to say what this woman whose essay we just read says. You're number one. You're number one. It's all about you. 
It doesn't really matter if this is really a baby or not. It's your body. It's your choice. The facts about life don't matter. And though on many fronts we are truly winning the battle for hearts and minds on this issue, the pro-aborts remain an incredibly powerful influence in our culture. Last year, we saw a very perfect example of this, I believe. I'm interested to know how many of you know the name Kermit Gosnell. Would you raise your hand? Okay, we have a handful, okay? Well, that's not surprising. The numbers of people who know about this man are much smaller than they should be. Most of you could identify a name like Jeffrey Dahmer, a notorious serial killer. But Kermit Gosnell is probably the most notorious serial killer in American history. His victims run literally into the thousands, probably the tens of thousands, we'll never know. Now the reason so few of us have heard this man's name and his crimes is because he's an abortionist. And to call an abortionist a serial killer is something the media doesn't like to do, even when it's true. And if you think about it, it's pretty much always true. But when you call an abortionist a serial killer, it might somehow get people thinking about what abortion really is. Yet even by the world's standards, this man was a murderer. And in fact, he was convicted of murder, uh, of murder a, year ago, or a year ago this coming Tuesday, May 13th, and sentenced to life in prison. He was sentenced for the way he ran his abortion clinic in Philadelphia, his legal abortion clinic in Philadelphia. In the end, he was convicted for the way he treated babies that were born alive after a botched abortion and denied them medical attention while they died. And he was also convicted, I think, in part because of the unsanitary conditions of his clinic, which actually cost the lives of several women, pregnant women, who came there. Now, many of those were late-term abortions. Now, as we've already noted, that really doesn't make it any worse. A baby aborted at less than three months, which is more common, still has arms and legs and fingers and toes and a beating heart. That beating heart is still forever stopped when a 10-week-old baby is aborted. But when a baby is aborted late term, sometimes around six months or seven months or eight months or even up to nine months, and yes, that's still legal in many places, it's especially hard for even those who do this kind of redefinition, who create these euphemisms and call themselves pro-choice, it's especially difficult even for them to stomach at late term. And you know why? It's because it's gruesome. Because it's gruesome. I won't go into the gory details. Not in this audience, at least. But the details are gory. It would be a good idea for every pro-lifer to understand what a DNC is, or a DNE, or a saline abortion, or God have mercy on all of us, a partial birth abortion. Now again, a partial birth abortion, a procedure that could have been invented by Nazi Joseph Mengele, only seems worse because the baby is so much bigger. But this is a procedure that pro-abortion politicians and high-profile rich people have fought for, despite being nothing short of barbaric. But again, here's the thing. You know what? All abortions, all abortions are barbaric, especially when you truly understand what is happening. And just a brief word about politics. Now, TCF is, quite intentionally so, one of the very least political churches you'll ever find. We don't endorse political candidates 
we don't endorse political parties. But when we are faced with such biblically clear moral issues that have become political hot potatoes, and they also impact our culture so significantly, we cannot be silent. We cannot be silent. That's why Jim Grinnell, for example, spoke with such moral clarity last fall about the homosexual agenda and about how we are to respond to that as believers. And that's why we must speak today about the evil of abortion. And yes, folks, it is evil. It is an evil. If you're unable or somehow unwilling to see that, then you just don't understand enough what truly goes on at Tulsa's only abortion clinic, reproductive services at 32nd, near 32nd and Sheridan. You don't understand what goes on at other abortuaries across the nation. If we as Christians cannot stand firm on an issue as basic and as critical as life, we're talking about life, then our individual witnesses as the ones who follow and serve, the one who said he himself is the life, is somehow incomplete. We need to, we must stand for life. Now, standing for life, folks, is going to look different for all of us. Some of us are involved in different parts of the battlefront. It's going to look different for all of us, and I recognize that. Not all of us are going to be like Diane and Chuck Shepard, who serve on the board of Men Pregnancy Center, providing real choices for women in crisis pregnancies. Not of all of us are going to be like Bruce and Lynn Clutter and Paul and Vicki Bergard, who made the choice to adopt children through crisis pregnancy outreach. Not all of us are going to be like Linda Steed and Chris Staub, who work with the kind of children who many in our culture say should be aborted because of the burden they bring, burden, quote unquote, they bring to their families and society. But all of us, all of us as believers in the one who creates life can and should do something. At the very least, we must be firm in our convictions and not let our culture drive us away from that. As of today, May 11, 2014, the abortion battle is neither won nor lost, which is why we as believers must keep waging this battle. Politically, the abortion battle has seen some small victories at state levels in recent years. It's encouraging that research shows that young adults are actually more pro-life than ever. They can clearly see through the euphemisms, and they understand what abortion really is in greater numbers than ever. But we kid ourselves if we think that those who want abortion on demand are just going to give up because some of these things are going against them. And also we must remember that there are so many cultural influences who are clearly on the side of the pro-abortionists. That's why most of you had never heard before this morning of Kermit Gosnell. The media did not report this story widely. You didn't see it on your nightly news. You kind of had to go looking for it. We cannot shrink back from the battle for life, simply because that battle brings us into conflict with the culture around us. That's what we do sometimes. Well, gee, we bump up into that culture, and we don't want to be unlike the culture. We want to be liked. We want to be sweet, right? And so we just kind of give it up. Abortion is, as one pastor wrote, an assault on God's creation and an affront to God's glory. If that which is in the womb is a person formed by God, this issue is not complex at all. I say a hearty amen to that. When we care deeply 
about the poor, when we care deeply for the mentally ill, when we care about the victims of sex trafficking, when we care about the unborn, it reflects God's heart. It truly reflects God's heart. We are his hands and we are his feet in these issues. We cannot be neutral while more than a million babies each year made in the image of God are dismembered and deprived of their right to life. Before we close with some practical ways that I can suggest to you that we can be pro-life as individuals, let me say something to those women among us who may have had an abortion. You think, well, gee, not here at TCF, but if the research is correct, seven in 10 women having abortions claim some sort of faith in God. And 21%, 21% of all pregnancies, excluding miscarriage, end in abortion. That's one out of five. Let me say to those women, and for those of you who may know someone who's had an abortion, there is forgiveness and there is healing at the foot of the cross. God's heart is for you. There's hope and there is healing. His grace is sufficient for this, as well as for any other thing in your past. So remember that. This is not meant to be a slam on those of you who may have had abortions. God loves and cares and forgives and heals. And that brings me to a response for all of us. I felt this morning the need to highlight sort of a state of the state of what's going on in abortion and the issues surrounding uh, this issue in our culture. We must be informed. And there are so many more things I could have said today, but just knowing about these issues is not enough. I believe God wants us to respond. There's a few ways we can get in. Uh, informed and respond, we can get more informed. That's a good response all by itself. Because you know what? The more you know about these things, knowing and understanding these issues, it will drive your conviction and it will drive your response. The other thing that's so critical, and this is probably even more important than the first one, is we can pray. We can pray. The evil of abortion is an enemy stronghold. I mean we are sacrificing our children to the God, little g, of this world. We must pray. We must pray about this issue. And then third, there are ways we can get involved. And there are a lot of ways we can get involved. But this morning I want to highlight one that's close to TCF in many ways. And it's one of the ways you can be positive. Now some of you are going to be fine going out and holding picket signs or marching or this and that. And that's fine. That those are good things to do. Some of you are going to be fine approaching your politicians and saying, I'm going to hold you accountable if you're not pro-life in your voting record. Those things are all well and good. But this is a very positive way. We have, this morning, these baby bottles. You may have noted them on your way in. Okay, There's a box of them out here. And what a better day than Mother's Day to feature a ministry that works with mothers and their children. This particular one's called Mend Pregnancy Resource Center. And MEND has a very long history with TCF. Now, TCF, uh, more than a decade ago, we actually uh, won some participation awards when they did their fundraising walks. We've had many individuals in this church who volunteered in a variety of capacities to help with the work of MEND. We've had two TCF members who served as president of the board of directors of this organization for more than a total of seven years now. I served on the board for 15 years at MEND. I'm still on their advisory board. And I served as three and a half years as board president. And right now, Diane Shepard 
is the president of the board of directors of MEND. This is a good and worthy organization to support, folks, a very positive way to be pro-life. They provide ultrasounds for women who are thinking about abortion. Remember, we talked about that window into the womb and how important that is in actually helping women make that choice for life. They provide pregnancy and baby clothing and other practical things for women and for their babies. They help both. They help the women and they help the babies and they help the women care for their babies. They have support groups for new moms. They have support groups for women who've had abortions to help them find healing. There's so much more that MEND does and it's all very worthy, gospel-fueled work. Here's how we can help today. When you leave today, take home one or two or more baby bottles, okay? Fill it with change, fill it with checks, fill it with bills. Not this bill, dollar bills. Go around your neighborhood and check in with your friends and maybe some family and ask for help. And then bring these back to TCF between now and Father's Day. So you don't have to do it this week, but it would be good if you did. But uh, bring them back between now and Father's Day. We'll have a box out there. If you want to know a little bit more about the work, gee, what is, this, what is my money going to be going to support? I'd urge you to contact uh, Diane or Chuck or even me, and we can tell you all that you need to know. Now, again, we won't all be involved at the same level or in the same kinds of things in this issue of life, but we can all be involved somehow. I really believe that. And so let me ask you to prayerfully consider how the Lord would have you be involved even if it's simply to pray for the many fine ministries like MEND or CPO. Let me tell you, having been on the board, they welcome your prayers. They, abs they absolutely welcome your prayers. These organizations are working on the front lines of what is a truly culture war issue. And as we pray, as we pray, let's ask God to have mercy on us all for the more than 50 million babies. We can't wrap our minds around that number, but that's the number who've died in this national holocaust in these last 40-plus years. Now that we've been a little further enlightened together on this issue, let's not sleep in that light. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of life. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you breathed life into us you knit us together in our mother's wombs. We thank you for our mothers who chose to give us life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as our hearts are touched by the reality of this national holocaust, first of all, we ask for your forgiveness for this nation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would have mercy on us. You would have mercy on us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be mobilized by your Spirit to respond in the way you would have us respond. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be informed. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be intentional and faithful to pray about this issue. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that for many of us, we would be convicted to get involved at some level with organizations that are working with pregnant women or the unborn or babies, or adoptions, or all these things which contribute to a truly pro-life culture. We pray that we would be strong contributors to that, each of us as individuals and this church here at TCF. Heavenly Father, you are the giver of life.
Help us, Heavenly Father, to not take that gift for granted as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen.